And indeed. Well, uh, thank you so much, Wendy. That was a very thrilling introduction. Um, I'm very delighted to be here today, and I'm absolutely thrilled that there are so many of you that want to come and listen to what I have to say about this particular painting. And um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with this work, but it strikes me that the way it's hung is fantastic because you can see it from right down the other end of the corridor. Mm -hmm. And it's, it literally sort of sings its way out at whoever's looking at it. And I think that that's the, it's the most important thing about this picture when we look at it. It's, it's actually a picture of a young man in his 40s, incredibly ambitious and desirous of wanting to be at the top of high society painting. And particularly, not so much portraiture, but portraiture is what he did when he was working in this country before he went to England. But he wanted more than ever to be what's known as a history painter. And it's sort of I don't know. I think it's very interesting because history painting was seen in the 18th century as being the summit of all that you could achieve as an artist. So grand paintings that were encapsulating important historical events. This, on the other hand, even though it's rather, I think it's rather grand, the frame certainly, I don't know if it's probably contemporary with the thing, but it's actually quite a demanding picture and it's very dramatic even though it's lit like this even if it wasn't lit so strongly I think you would immediately get this um, very powerful impact of a man his sort of very high forehead this fantastic um, straight painted um, curl on his wig because he's wearing a wig and um, the red jacket. Now, apparently, Copley was rather keen on fine dressing as well. And when he was... I mean, he was a very successful painter in Boston before he left for London. And he was, I think, very much aware... And I've got tons of quotes, and, of course, I'm not going to be able to find them all when I talk to you. But he was very aware of the fact that he was if you like, in the provinces, that the, the style of painting in Boston, he had been taught by his stepfather, who was a British engraver who married his widowed mother. Um, or he was widowed and then married the mother. But he'd been taught, so he'd been taught a little bit by his stepfather. And then he had really learnt painting himself, self-made man. But there is a sense that there is a great deal of frustration about the situation in which he found himself in America. People felt that he was very good and that he had um, a sense of being able to make paintings that looked like people. He was also very, very good at painting draperies and giving a sort of realistic characterization of the people who were in Boston. So he was working mainly as well for rich merchants who had, um, who had a bit of money and wanted to have their portraits. But those paintings that he was doing were actually sort of quite tight and sharp. And what happens when he goes to London 
is that he starts sort of broadening out his work. But the reason he goes to London is, of course, because he's ambitious, but also because he is invited, really, by um, Benjamin West and Joshua Reynolds. So he's over there, thank you, That's Benjamin West. And so he's encouraged to come. What he does is he actually sends a fantastic painting that is in the collection in Boston at the Museum of Fine Art there. Um, and it's a painting of his half-brother playing with a squirrel. And it's the most extraordinary, um, vivid and sort of crisp. Uh, it's a sort of painting that almost looks like a surrealist painting today. You know, it's got that sort of very contemporary, sort of smart feeling to it. He sends that painting to London and actually wows the London art scene. They're all sort of knocked out by how, how good it is. And I think he's jolly good. And Reynolds writes to him and says, you know, you should come, really, because you're in a bit of a narrow gauge there in Boston. Forgive me. But, you know, he says, you really, you ought to come. You ought to come to Europe. You ought to make, you know, make the most of what's going on here. And you should really do the grand tour and all that sort of thing so that you can get inspired by all of the art that we've got here, patronising as that might seem to you, it was just the sort of thing that he wanted to hear. So he goes, first of all he comes over, he leaves his family, he leaves his wife and his three children with one on the way, and he goes to London first and then he goes to visit um, Italy and there he sees, really, for the first time, paintings that are real paintings. Not to say that he didn't have real paintings in America, but when he was working in America, he had been working from mainly looking at reproductions. He was looking at engravings and mezzotints. So they were sort of secondary materials. So they were always copies. When you copy anything, you're always sort of, there's always a slight sort of degrading. It either gets tightened up or you're missing out on various things. You'll get an, an outline of a composition, fine, but you won't get the, the, the punch of the brush stroke and you won't get the colour. So in a way, he's very aware that he's, you know, this, he's sort of being held back by that. He goes to Italy and it's just dynamite and uh, he sees all sorts of things, wonderful collections. He makes copies. This is also something that all the artists in the 18th century were doing and all the sort of posh people, anyone who had a bit of money was going on the grand tour. So there was a sort of facility for doing that. And there were also artists in Italy who, British artists, who were, um, you know, making a good living of painting noblemen's portraits as they passed through Rome. So there was sort of something quite, um, there was, you know, he was in the swing of things. He gets back to London and he is in a dilemma about what to do, really. Because, of course, as you well know, a lot of tricky things happening in Boston. <laughs> For want of a better way of saying it. But there are some very charming letters to his wife. Um, he's, he, is, he does miss her. So... In 1774, he writes to his wife from France, if you knew how great my desires were to be with you, you would not think it necessary to say one word to hasten that happy time. I am sure I shall think that an hour of happiness that brings us together beyond any I shall enjoy until it arrives. 
as soon as possible, you shall know what my prospects are in England. Because he's leaving a very good business in America. You know, he's ticking over nicely, thank you very much. Good money coming in. And it's a bit of a risk to go into a new market where he hasn't got his reputation, even though the possibilities are bigger. As soon as possible, you shall know what my prospects are in England, and then you will be able to determine whether, whether it is best for you to go there or for me to return to America. When I reflect on the condition Boston may be in, I tremble for you all. In a state of confusion and bloodshed, no one is safe, and I greatly fear the dispute that the dispute will end in the most fatal and dreadful consequences. If general confusion is inevitable, I hope it will not take place until you are in England. And then from Palmer, he writes, by the time this reaches you, and can you imagine, can you just imagine getting these written letters onto the boat? This is what I was imagining, you know, and then they're going across the ocean, takes forever, and then they finally get there, and actually, you know, they're delivered... You know, of course, I hop on a plane, it's no problem, but this is a different story. By the time this reaches you, it probably took three months, if it please God to give me life and health, I shall be very near England. When there, I shall think of myself at home. You cannot more ardently wish to meet me than I do for the happy moment that we will again, that, that will again bless me with the possession of so endearing a wife and children. Be not too anxious, for the time will soon arrive." So sweet, isn't it? And then there's another letter from her in 1775 that says she's coming to London with three of the children. My thoughts, he says, are constantly with you and our children. You tell me you brought three, but you do not say which one you left behind. I suppose it was the youngest, he being too delicate to bring. And that takes me to a little, my next little bit of the story, which is in fact... That little one didn't survive. But he had already started painting this painting, which was exhibited in 1777 at the Royal Academy. And this painting is in um, the National Gallery. Just, I'm pointing sort of over there, but it might be over there. <laughs> and it's a very interesting painting because it actually has the four kids in it. There's another... He started this with the four lost one, then there was another replacement. But it's also it's a picture of his father-in-law, and he married into a wealthy merchant's family. So there was money already sort of underpinning the whole of the adventure, if you like. So even though he's worried about money, um, it doesn't feel as if they were always lacking money. But this is a really interesting painting for me, because it does show uh, the influence of the 17th century paintings that he had obviously seen when he visited the Queen's collection. So he would have seen the Van Dykes there and the Rubens, and those paintings in turn had been influenced by other Italian artists. I think it's an interesting-looking painting. Anyway, it's his stab at um, trying to get a bit of formal recognition... And um, it's, it's shown at the RA, and he, and, sorry, and I say the RA, that means um, the Royal Academy, and the Royal Academy in London was this sort of august institution that was set up by the great and the good, but particularly spearheaded by Sir Joshua Reynolds, who wanted to 
sort of clarify the position of artists and not have artists be seen as Copley always complained in this country that they were seen as just sort of ordinary, um, you know, cobblers and just people just doing an ordinary sort of um, normal type of sort of craftsman-like job. And indeed, the same thing was with Reynolds, who wanted to sort of up the status of the artist, because that's, it's a very interesting thing, and it is what happens, really, to the artists in that formalisation of the Royal Academy in the 18th century. So there was some, um, you know, the great and the good, and they came together, and mainly men. There were two women. Um, and Reynolds would give lectures every year, uh, his discourses. And they're very interesting um, documents, actually, still to read. And he was quite a... I'm sorry, but I'm never very fond of him, so I'm always a bit critical. But he did do a lot for painting, and he, he does have some very interesting things to say about it. But basically, he's upping the status, and he says that history painting is right up there. So the young Copley, doing quite well in London. He actually is being invited to London by Reynolds, the top. So he's got a real way in to society and to the business, and he can actually make his life there in London, and he becomes elected. So it's like everything, you know, you don't get into the inner circle unless you know the right people, and he's very well placed to do that. So he's confident... He's ambitious, and he's working in a similar vein to his contemporaries. I mean, I see when I see this and I compare it to the sort of works I saw in Boston, and indeed, just around the corner there, there's a sort of there's another work which I feel is very much in that sort of more Boston style. It's very, it's very um, tight, whereas this has got the sort of flourish that you get with people like Gainsborough. It's definitely got this sort of a la prima style that you get in Gainsborough, which is you put down a ground, you have everything ready, you make a darkish outline of what you, where you're going to go, and you paint straight onto the canvas. And that is a very different way of painting from the way that artists would have done it in the 17th century, where they would have been working against a grey ground and they would have been working tonally, and leaving a grey ground and putting in dark tones and tints. But here you get all of, the, all of the surface, all of the working is on the surface, and there's no sort of anxiety about it. And actually, there's quite a nice... If you look carefully here, you can just see there's a certain correction where he's actually sort of pulling in that, that burnt umber there on the side, and over here as well. So it's sort of... It's got a looseness... And he was described, actually, as having sort of rather little eyes that if he worked very hard would just be disappearing into his head and a high forehead. But the interesting thing about this, I think, that I was looking at earlier on is that he doesn't do one of the things that Gainsborough does, uh, which is Gainsborough sort of finishes off his eyes with a little white highlight, little blob. And it's a funny thing. If you look around the portraits here, some of them have it and some of them don't. It's a really useful technique for just suggesting, for just sort of popping up the colour of the eyes. And I think it's actually 
it's really interesting that he hasn't done that here, and he hasn't done it because, of course, he doesn't need to because he's got all this very punchy white happening here with that cadmium red, and he's got that sort of curl, which is pushing your eyes into looking at that part of his face, and the whole of it is backed by that darkness so that it's very constructed. So I think at the same time as sort of being quite loose, he's on the ball about it, and this shows that he's actually sort of developing as an artist. Was this painted in London or in Boston? Uh, sorry, this was painted in London, okay. just a couple of years after he got there. But nobody seems to know quite when, 1780, 80, oh, right. 284, which is, you know... Anyway, I'm amazed that anyone couldn't even date it that far. The next big thing that happens to him... I'm going to speed up now because it was not halfway there... Um, is that he paints this painting. This is 1778, and this is Watson and the Shark. I'm sure you know this one. Yeah? So this is in Boston. And um, he's commissioned by this chap, Watson, who was... Uh, sorry, Boston, fine art, Boston. No, there are two. Ah! There's one here and one. Okay. Tomorrow. Okay. Okay. Well, this was the one that he made a copy of that was in his studio all his life, and that was with his family. Yes, absolutely, is his copy. And in fact, in Boston, there's another copy that someone did before they made the engraving. But this is an interesting tale as well because it's tells the story of this poor man, Watson, who goes for a swim and then gets attacked and loses a leg. And, but the, the excitement about the picture is that it is recording uh, a contemporary sort of thrilling incident. The thing that it made me think of when I was thinking about all of this was the film Jaws and then Damien Hirst's Shark, you know, and I was just thinking about the, it's the frisson, isn't it, of the unknown and the terror and that potential, you know, what would it be like to have your leg ripped off? Well, anyway, people, people thought it was fantastically um, uh, exciting to see that, and I've got the figures somewhere. It was shown at the, um, it was shown at the Academy again. And something like 25,000 people paid to see that painting. And that really, made his, that really made his mark on the world. And after that, the painting was engraved. And the, in those days, they used to do a subscription for engravings so that people could sign up and put the name down, and, and therefore they collected all the signatures. And apparently there were 250,000 signatures, so everybody wanted this engraving. Well, the last important painting that he did, which was a... Well, not the last important. The one that I know, because I work at the Portrait Gallery, is called The Death of Chatham, and that is another big history painting, and it records the so-called Death of Chatham... Chatham was an important person in the big debate about the UK and America, which, not being a historian, I won't go into, but basically he was, he was trying to get things to be worked out satisfactorily 
but in, in doing that, um, he actually had a heart attack in the House of Lords and died. So it's a very dramatic picture of a very dramatic event, which was also very successful. But those are the sort of highlights of his career. And the sad thing about him is that actually he did carry on doing fine. He did carry on being successful in London. He was obviously very talented. But towards the end of his life, um, 1815, right? In 1811, when Copley had started really being rather jealous of um, Benjamin West, forgetting how West had helped him in the beginning, um, unhappy about the way other people were more successful than he, um, this um, friend, somebody called Samuel Moore, seeing him, says, he is very old and infirm. His powers of mind have almost entirely left him. His late paintings are miserable. It is really a lamentable thing that a man should outlive his faculties. He has been a first-rate painter, as you well know. I saw at his home some exquisite pieces which he painted 20 or 30 years ago, but his paintings of the last four or five years are very bad. That's really sad. And his wife reported to their daughter, your father grows feeble in his limbs. He goes very little out of the house, for walking fatigues him. But his health is good, and he still pursues his profession with pleasure. And he would be uncomfortable could he not use his brush. Half a century earlier, Copley himself had noted, painters cannot live on art alone, though I could hardly live without it. And that's the, the end of a very sort of incredible story of somebody who had early important respect and fame in his homeland, was brave enough and ambitious to go somewhere very different to take his own skill and to try and sort of make it in a rather difficult business to have success and then to sort of lose it in a way um, and I suppose in a way it's a sort of moral tale isn't it you know yes we have to be ambitious but don't be too grumpy if it doesn't go quite as well as you want. It's a question of how you, how you temper your ambition, I think. Um, and it's a very difficult field. But I like this painting, and I tell you, I had never seen it really before today. What I really love about it, and a lot of the paintings here, the thing that's very, very special, is that the works are not glazed, so that you can actually see. Obviously, you shouldn't touch but you can, you can go very close and you can, you can look very closely at the work. And through looking at those things, you can really see the vigour. You know, this is a very vital person. And he's, you know, this painting stayed in the family until the 1930s when it then was sold. So I think that that is also testament to something very precious that's going on there, that people... You know, they might have been offered quite a lot of money to, you know, in the past. But this is something there, and they think, oh, this was 
my great, 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 you know, he was the famous Copley, you know, all those people really did pay to go and see that one painting he did of Watson and the Shark. That's it. Thank you. Thank you.